1: To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to Forma, a podcast featuring conversations with authors, teachers, creators, and community leaders who are carefully contemplating the nature and practice of classical education, an aesthetic wonder and Christian community. I'm David Kern. In this week's episode, I had the really wonderful opportunity to chat with Dr. Emily Wilson, who recently released, uh, through Norton, a new edition of the Odyssey. She is, in fact, the first woman to translate the Odyssey. There have been write ups about her in the New York Times, the Washington Post, uh, Vox.com, and a myriad of other uh, sources online. Uh, Dr. Wilson is a professor of classical studies at the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, She lived in Philadelphia, and she has written several books um, about Greek literature, uh, including translation of Greek plays uh, and scholarly studies of other works. But nothing in those works quite compares to the task of translating Homer's Odyssey, one of the most beloved poems, one of the most beloved works of literature ever created. But not only is it beloved, It's also long, um, and it's complicated, and there's so many layers to it. Dr. Wilson and I chatted about the challenges of translation, dealing with expectations, um, working from the original text, dealing with uh, things like uh, people's affections for the poem and how how you deal with people's opinions about a word like polytropos. And we took a step back, and we talked a little bit about where her love for the Odyssey came from, what it meant to her as a child, and how her affection for it only grew and matured as she got older, as one would expect. But it was born out of a childhood sense of loneliness, she, she told me. Um, uh, the idea of not feeling like she didn't have a lot of friends around, like she was a little bit um, adrift, in a way. And, and when she discovered the Odyssey as an eight-year-old, um, through a play where she actually was able to act as Athena. She was able to perform the part of Athena. The story was open to her in a way that I think is unique to young people, to, to, to children. Um, and her love for the story took root then. And then, of course, it was many years later that she turned to translation. Translation. So without further ado, I want to kick it over to my interview with Dr. Emily Wilson. I think you are really going to enjoy this. I was challenged and encouraged and inspired by what she had to say here. Um, All at once, and I think you will be too. So this is my interview with Dr. Emily Wilson about her brand new translation of The Odyssey, which is available now. You can get it wherever books are sold. Enjoy. Well, my, my first question for you is, I guess, somewhat biographical, because I imagine that if you're going to be... You're going to be spending the time that it takes to produce a translation of a poem as long and complicated as the Odyssey or, you know, the other epics like it. You have to at least come from it, at least somewhat from the perspective of love or affection for the work Mm -hmm. itself. It can't just be a professional duty, I would think. So where did your love of the Odyssey come from?
2: I guess it comes from many different sources. I mean, I, just in terms of biography, I first got exposed to this story. In fact, I wrote about this in a little piece for Paris Review. I first got exposed to the story when I was eight, when I was in the, my primary school did a, it was a Church of England primary school called St. Barnabas um church of england school they did a production of the odyssey and i got to be the goddess Athena and it was absolute high point high point of of that year when i was eight years Mm -hmm. old i I was a shy and sort of geeky kid and it was hard for me to to connect with to connect with people partly because i was i was new in the school and i was lonely and i felt sort of alienated and -hmm. then i got to, to be exposed to this story and have this very intimate relationship with this story by playing the part of Athena. And it was so exciting to me that to realize how deeply this story could speak to me. Um, Mm. And that made me then want to read all the Greek myths in, you know, in kids adaptations, of course, when I was eight. And then as I got older, I read the originals in translation. And then as I got older still, I studied both Latin and Greek in high school. Mm. Um, I realized that I loved the languages as well as the stories. Mm. Hmm. And then you know, I read Homer as an undergraduate. I, I've always been rereading this poem, and I find that it's a poem which speaks to me in different ways now that I'm older than eight. You know, it's, it's, okay. it's, it's, a, it's extraordinary that it's it, it's so 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 much does the things that a classic is supposed to do that it can be read on so many different levels by hmm. so many different kinds of people.
1: What do you think it was about the poem that made your eight-year-old eight-year-old self love it so much? You, you said that you were. Did you say that you were shy and geeky? <laughs>
2: I was shy and geeky and lonely, and I was a new kid in school. Um, you know, so I think part of it was about how um, this is a story about homecoming, in which most of the poem, especially in the kids' adaptations versions, the hero isn't at home. Right. So it's about um, being out of place and feeling lost and scared. And I could definitely relate to all of that very deeply. Mm. And then also the fact that there was both the, the male hero who's lost and scared, but then the powerful female or mostly female goddess who is in control and can guide everything. They mm. wanted to identify with both of those characters very strongly. But mm. it provided these alternative models for how to be and how to live.
1: Mm. I do think, in my experience anyway, that one of the things that doesn't seem talked about. As as much as it perhaps ought to be, is Odysseus's. Well, not even just Odysseus. This is true of many characters. The the like the loneliness, the the fear of
2: yeah. of their yes. experiences
1: that go along with that. It's we often talk about Odysseus's cunning, right? Right. And how how he you know braves these these crazy adventures, but the other things that go along with that I think are, are sometimes spoken of too infrequently.
2: Right. So so for quite a lot of the most famous and also greatest scenes in this poem, I mean, I'm thinking, for instance, of the long episode at the end of book five where he's um, shipwrecked and lost and he doesn't know if he's ever going to reach land and he's on the raft of, of, that he's built on the island of Calypso and then the whole raft disintegrates and he's out on the, on the sea all completely alone, clutching onto little fragments of the shipwrecked um, vessel and he's only saved by that mysterious episode of the white goddess. And then even when he reaches land, there's no landing place. So then that that evocation of what it's like to be totally alone, totally lost, totally desperate, and Mm. there might be no help out there at all. I think it's really beautifully and vividly and scarily um, presented. And the way that he's alone also, I mean, that Odysseus is alone also, even once he gets to Ithaca, because he can't reveal himself Mm. um, in very, very small doses to individual people. and then also the loneliness of Penelope is really beautifully evoked in this poem as well. Mm. Yeah. She's so deeply alone. She's constantly being flanked by two slaves because the, the elite people in this poem are constantly having to be presented as not alone. But she's alone, mm. w- but with these unnamed characters who are clearly not presented as people she can talk to. And Telemachus also is depicted as very, very alone. But he's, there's, a, there's a famous moment when he appears not alone because two dogs come with him but he's alone i mean that's a way of saying he's alone yeah all, all he has for company he has no brothers he has no friends he only has two dogs
1: and even <clears throat> and they're alone yet they're surrounded by the suitors and exactly, Odys- yes. odysseus is around but he's or alone but he's you know perhaps he's with calypso but he feels alone he, he feels still has alone. that longing to be to be home yes hmm.
2: Exactly. Yes. So the loneliness of of, of, the, of the crowd is also, very, I think, very well evoked in this poem.
1: Mm. The
2: way that you can be alone, surrounded by people.
1: And do you think that that, um, if you couldn't, even if you couldn't have articulated it as a child, that that was something that appealed to to your, you know, absolutely. Design, yes. Design I, think I
2: think that was or. essential to to what I liked about the story was mm. that that I was. Um, i I had trouble making friends, and I felt that this poem somehow spoke to i would I wouldn't have been able to say that at the time. I would have just said right, I thought it was right I, would have said it, I thought it was a cool story you know yeah, but it was definitely about that hmm.
1: well, like every great work there's they're cool stories that have so many more things going on
2: right <laughs> Yes, exactly yes
1: so okay so you you studied it in college. when did you get to the point where you felt like your love for it was turning into this desire to produce your own version of it if that makes if that's the way of putting it
2: so i i i'm not sure that i would have done it if i hadn't been asked um so okay. not, not to do it and you know at first i wasn't sure if the world needed it you know because there have been so many translations of the odyssey into english right, already yeah. what, i wouldn't have done it if i didn't feel that i could do something really different um, and then, so when 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 the Norton people asked me, I then went and read or read so in some cases reread, read but mostly just read for the first time. Um, I read Book Nine in something like ten or twelve different versions. I mean, different the different versions that people usually read, right, and right, And I realised that I, that there were things that dissatisfied me, me about each of them. I mean, obviously there were things to admire about each of them, but there were also things that I felt weren't being brought out about each of them and also different things that I felt I could do poetically or in, in literary and stylistic ways. Um, so that made me realise that I actually wanted to do it not just because I loved the original, but because I felt I could could create a different odyssey. Mm. And an odyssey that was not just different in a gimmicky way, but different in a way that was speaking to some deep and important elements of the original that weren't reflected in the you know 60 or 70 versions that are available right now
1: yeah and and wait, is it the new york times that in with their profile of you i think that mentions that most of those versions those 60 versions translated into english have been presented in the last century
2: Exactly. Yes. Yeah. So there's been, it's been not just that it's not that the stream has been drying up; it's actually been gushing into a you know whatever, whatever waterway imagery we want. But it's yeah. been more and more over the last e- even five or ten years. There've been more and more English odysseys, which of so, course is partly about the um, the particular marketing. I mean, about the particular ways that the especially the American educational system is set up, so that there were all these you know college classes where there's introduction to literature one hundred and one. And uh yeah, they're going to read The Odyssey in a translation There needs to be a translation that they can all buy and read and uh, have. Yeah.
1: right so so you felt like it would be putting too fine a point on it to say that you felt like you had to you had to you needed to have something to add to the conversation and not just kind of restate what everyone else was saying
2: absolutely yes. Yeah. so so I mean, I guess the conversation makes it sound like it's all like an essay. And it's both like, I think it's both a hermeneutic question of what, what is the Odyssey about? What mm-hmm. kinds of interpretation, um, what's prioritized in this interpretation slash translation versus that interpretation? I mean, every translation gives a different picture of what the Odyssey is about. Mm-hmm. But then also, I mean, style slips into hermeneutics, right? So that it's not just about how, what kind of character, <laughs> this year, it's also about um, what kind of poet what kind of poetry is Homeric poetry. Right. So um, from the beginning, a very important thing to me was to try and make sure I could create a regular um, metrical version of the Odyssey because the original is so so regular metrically and has such a distinctive poetic music. So that was that was also one of the big things I felt was missing from most contemporary translations. Hmm. Obviously so, it's there in the Chapman translation, but that's 400 years old. So. Right, yeah. <laughs> different one. Yes.
1: So how did you go about deciding how to approach that was it trial and i mean you wrote in an iambic pentameter correct
2: yes correct yes
1: Uh, i mean was that an i mean was was it an obvious choice to do that because not every translation approaches it the way you're approaching it so it seems to that that meter seems to capture um some of the spirit of the original but it, it it well let me put it this way it seems like sometimes there is a a you're forced to at least there's the idea that you have to make the choice between a so-called literal translation where you're just really capturing the exact definition of these words or whatever you see this Mm -hmm. in scriptural translation and uh, things like that um as opposed to being poetic and it's like so when people Mm -hmm. talk about which translation do i use i'll often hear uh the conversation go something like well do you want a more literal one or do you want the poetic one like what are you more interested in did you feel that challenge to do one or the other when you were when you were trying to decide how to approach it
2: i i mean i think the terms literal and poetic are very often um used as a sort of cover for some real oversimplification about what it was actually happening mm-hmm. you know because there is no such thing as a sort of literal if you mean a, a version in english that's the same as the version in greek you know that that's never going to exist
1: right i mean I could right.
2: something like so i was going to i was saying let's not talk about the first line but if I were to say the first line in the order that it's that it is in the original, right? Man to me say muse much turn who much much wandered when of Troy holy citadel sacked. I could I could write that, and it wouldn't convey anything. I don't think. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it would convey something or other that's some words which correspond to some other words, but I don't think it conveys anything of what the original is saying, e- even on the syntactical level, because English word order is totally different from um, Greek word order. And I think that the whole idea of what is a poetic translation is also seriously problematic. I and mean, I, I've, I've heard people sort of saying that my version is somehow less poetic, even though it's metrical, because it's too clear. And that, so in order to be poetic, you have to be obscure, or you have to be pompous, and I just think that that's um, really mistaking what, what poetry is. I mean, if you think about Shakespeare as a poet, he's very often what Shakespearean characters, even when they're speaking, as they very often are, in iambic pentameter, they're often very clear. Right, yeah. That You have to, in order to make it poetry, you have to add in some super fancy incomprehensible imagery, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it just seems to me that the, the whole binary is a little bit false. I mean, I think there's there's a possibility of either being um, sort of more foreignizing versus more domesticizing, but those terms are also problematic because I mean, if you think about what is it to represent um, Homer as if you were as if he lived with us, as if he's domestic in our culture, what does that mean? I mean, I think on some level, that like, you could say it's domesticizing to put um, Homer into a an English meter, as opposed to trying to put English into a Greek meter. Mm. Um, but in either case, you're registering that this is not language which is exactly the same as how people speak. Right. Um, or if you if you write in a sort of clunky English that's not quite like real English, is that, um, is that being more poetic or being less poetic? I think mm. it can be being less poetic. Mm. Um, or if you put if you put Homer into um, I don't know into, into I mean, I sort of, struggle with the, the idea that there is such a thing as the literal translation, or as the right. as the single way of being poetic. Both well, of those things, automatically.
1: And of course, these are these are passed down through a tradition that wasn't even written. So well, d- well, originally,
2: no, because the the original poems that we have, the Iliad and the Odyssey, are written poems. They're based on an oral tradition, but they right. okay. wouldn't exist if they, if they weren't written, right? I and mean, they couldn't have been created if they weren't, if, if literacy hadn't existed
1: in right, the right, right.
2: early 7th century. So I mean, that's such a common sort of misstep that people make because it's based on an oral, oral tradition. It must be oral, which isn't quite the same thing.
1: Right. Okay. Okay. So, okay, when you were, when you were working on your translation and you were comparing it to... Other translations, Chapman or or whoever did did you find that you were relying on the choices that those uh, other translators and poets made, or were you actively trying to avoid imitating? what some of these other people were doing
2: i I didn't do either one because so i as i said i when i first did the proposal for the um for for my translation Mm -hmm. five or six years ago i i did this whole exercise of reading multiple different translations like reading a a little bit of multiple different translations Mm -hmm. to get a sense Mm -hmm. of the Mm -hmm. different choices they're making stylistically hominically all that but then after that i i put them all away and i didn't look at any other translations while i i looked at the original and i looked at Dictionaries and commentaries, but I didn't mm-hmm. look at any other translations. So, I mean, obviously, I had I had sort of in my mind a memory of the general outline of how of what the style is of each of the others, but I didn't I didn't know in detail um, until fairly recently how how particular episodes in mine compares to others. Mm-hmm. Um, it was only since since I finished mine, I then wanted to be able to communicate with other people more. <laughs> right. Haven't read the original about how is mine different. Right. So for that purpose, I then went back and looked at some other versions of some particular scenes. So I can now tell you how my version is different for mm. you know, some particular scenes. But I couldn't have told you that three years ago because I hadn't read them all.
1: Mm. No. Did you um, have you have you found any parts where you you compared it to Chapman or or whoever and you said yeah I got that right and he got that wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Well, I mean, I, I've already, ta- I already talked in the New York Times piece a little bit and in other places about the way that so many of the other translations, including, sadly, Chapman, whom I love, as well as Pope, whom I also love, and mm-hmm. several of these more recent ones, do get wrong the way that um, Telemachus talks about the slave women when he's about to hang them. But the original doesn't mm-hmm. actually make him abuse them. It, does, it, doesn't, it says in the original that he wants to hang those who spent the night behind, beside the suitors. And it's, it's very straightforward language. It's not doesn't use any particular term of abuse. And mm. pretty much every other translation that I've looked at imports a term of abuse. Mm. I think it's problematic, and I was surprised by that. I hadn't realized the extent to which um, translations are shaped by the translator's own uncon- unconscious biases. Mm. But clearly they are.
1: Did you see that pop up in your own, do you think, if you were reflecting back on, like, in other words, have you seen any of your own perhaps biases show up in your work? And, I mean, that's probably, maybe perhaps an unfair
2: question. Well, obviously, I can't tell you about my, the things I didn't notice, you know. Right. <laughs> of course, of course read, not, yeah. Once I reread it, my, my own translation in 20 years, then I suspect I'll see things that I um. didn't see at the time. So um, your translation is well, not your
1: go-to source now?
2: Well, the Greek is my go-to source, right?
1: <laughs> Fair, Fair <laughs> enough. <laughs>
2: But um, I mean, I, I definitely feel that I I try very hard to think about my biases and also to think about what my yeah. interpretations are, mm. and I think that that's a that's a particular kind of advantage. And I think people can tend to think, I mean, people who do, who are not translators often think the way to do it is just to to just to translate. Mm. You don't have to have an interpretation because that would be imposing something on the text. Mm. And I don't think of it like that. I think. The way to do it is to think through whatever your interpretation is and to make sure you can fully defend it and and rethink it if if you don't feel like it hangs together from the text. Mm. Um, But to be as self-conscious as possible and as conscious of the text as possible when you're trying to construct this is how this scene makes sense or this is how this character makes sense. Um, so just to, to try and use as full an awareness as I, as I possibly could, including of what what well the preoccupations are that I'm bringing to the text as well as what I'm finding in the text, and how there's, there's always going to be in any reading process or any writing process, any translation process, this dialogue between what you find and what you what you what what you come asking
1: hmm. Was there anything that that was particularly? worrisome or scary in approaching this I and mean, on the one hand you've got this book that you love and then of course it's a book that that is beloved by so many other people so was there hmm. a, were there anything any choices that you th- that you were considering or or anything like that 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 made you nervous as you were approaching it?
2: Hmm. Uh, I'm not sure I mean I think in- and During the actual, you know, days and weeks and months of doing the work, I didn't feel nervous about reception in the same in that way, and I didn't feel like I didn't feel. Mostly, I was just thinking about well, how can I do my best by this text, and also awesome. by, by both these texts, both by yeah. the text I'm reading and the text I'm creating. Hmm. Um, so I'm not sure that I felt that kind of terror at the time. I mean, I think, you know, now I have to talk about it to lots and lots of different people and (laughs) some of them aren't going to like it. And I'm aware of that now, but I think in a way, it's a good thing that I wasn't, I wasn't worrying about them. I was just trying to tell truth.
1: Does it, does it bother you that someone who is maybe committed to, say, Fagels or Mandelbaum or whoever might not like your text?
2: i think you know degus typus known as dis, dis, disputandum you know there's there's no if they just don't like it because they don't like how it sounds then i i don't think there's an argument there it's just yeah. that's fine they just yeah. don't like how it sounds and it, yeah. it my my version has a very distinctive music and if you don't like that kind of music that's that's, that's, that's up to you um yeah. i mean, i think there's a, there's a basis for an interesting conversation and not not necessarily an aggressive conversation but just a conversation about um to what extent people either agree, disagree, or feel challenged by or want to talk about the ways the things that might surprise me surprise them um, when they compare my version to Fagels or or to Mandelbaum or whoever. I mean I think I think there is I mean I hope that one of the things I'm doing even for people who don't like who don't who don't like my version as much as the Fagel's version is to show that there are alternatives. So there are ways of reading the original that are very different from the way that Fagel's reads it. and then to invite, to invite some conversation about that, I mean, to invite conversation both about you know, what is heroism in this text, um, what, how does the poem define identity or home or belonging? Hmm. Um, to what extent is Odysseus presented as an admirable protagonist in every single scene? Hmm. To what extent is the narrative always focalized through one person or through his point of view versus the alternative points of view? And I think it was actually an interesting question. So it, whether or not people like it, I'm not sure if that is all that interesting. But I think whether or not people think harder about it, that's, that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. You mentioned that um, you, your version has a certain kind of music to it. Did you set out with the idea of, of creating that music? Or, or did that sort of happen as you were working through it?
2: Well, I definitely set out to um, to write verse and to write pentam- I am a pentameter throughout, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I didn't know if I would feel the uh, in the process of doing that that I could sort of count any of it as poetry as opposed to verse, you know. And I still not, I'm not sure how much of it I would count as, you know, mm. uh, how how good is it? I don't know, mm-hmm. but I do think that I managed to make it sound. I mean, the, there's a danger in having a very strict formal scheme that it could sound too monotone. And I very much didn't want it to sound monotone. I very much wanted that it be a possibility that it's going to sound lush and magical and um, it's going to sound like, like the waves of the ocean here. And then it's going to sound terrifying and stark here. And, you know, there's going to be different musics going on in different moments. Hmm. Um, So I definitely, I thought about that and I, I, did, I think in a way, it's the kind of thing that you can't do in theory or in, or ahead of time. You have to just keep on doing it, and then rewriting and rewriting to, to see if you can get any closer to what you want.
1: Hmm. Uh, so why iambic pentameter specifically? Like what, you say you set out to do that, That was one of your initial goals. Yes. Is that because it, it, it is the English meter that most um, is most like the original Greek verse?
2: It's most like in its cultural context. It's not most like in terms of does it actually sound the same? Okay. Right. Because I mean, there have been experiments in English to do dactylic hexameter, which right. is the rhythm of the original, um, but there's never been a sort of successful English epic in dactylic hexameter. There's no, um, you know, there have been little experiments. There are some great little experiments by Swinburne from the nineteenth century, um, but it's I, I don't think it's usable. At, um, because it doesn't have the same history in English, and it also doesn't have the same—I um, think—I think it requires a lot of distortion of English, and, and it would mean that my hmm. version uh, wouldn't have the kind of clarity that I wanted. If I wanted to do that hex- hex- hexameter, and I wanted it to both be clear and also to be paying a kind of homage to um, to Shakespeare, to Chaucer, to Milton, to you know, to this long history of English narrative and dramatic poetry. Hmm. It, in a way, you know, Homer is based, as we said, as we were just saying, based on all tradition, and it has this heritage built into it. So I wanted my my Odyssey to not just have the heritage of the Greek poem built into it, but also this heritage of, you know, all these hundreds of years or thousands of years since Homer. There's some acknowledgement that I'm writing in a language which has its own poetic tradition.
1: Hmm. That sounds like a great challenge to both be (laughs) to be you know to be responsible both for the original greek and for the language that you're translating it into to to be yes to be respectful and and yeah just responsible to both of those traditions that sounds like a great challenge
2: it's a super it's it's a huge challenge yes and 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 of course i don't feel like i sort of completely hit it out of the park in every single line. I mean, I feel like it was it was a very, very difficult thing to do. And I think, you know, if I've even partly succeeded in it, then that's good. But I, I don't imagine that there's a, poss- there's a possible world in which I could have done it perfectly throughout, you know. It, yeah. It's very difficult. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I've used most of our time already, but I want to ask you a quick question about teaching the Odyssey, if that's okay. Sure. Many of our listeners um, work... In, I'd work with high schoolers and even younger. And, and so they're trying to introduce these great epic poems to students who have never read them before. And not only yeah. that, are not familiar in many cases anymore with the context of the stories themselves. Um, mm-hmm. Similar to how many, unfortunately, many American students now, when you come to Shakespeare, there's no context for him. and So yeah. it's very confusing because of that, um, in ways that it probably ought not to be, what advice do you have for for teachers who are bringing the Odyssey to students for the first time? How how would you begin, and in what ways do you think it's possible that your translation, in particular, can help introduce new generations of young people to this great story?
2: Mm-hmm. That's a great question. Um, so I I hope that my version is very very clear i mean i hope it's very very readable such that pretty much any age of person ought to be able to to understand the story without being sort of too much off put right from the start by vocabulary words i mean Mm. even though i hope my my version i hope the poetic rhythm and the music of it that we've been talking about so much is audible if you read it out loud even if you just don't ahead of time know what pentameter is if you read it out loud yeah, that there's a rhythm, but it's very, very clear. I mean, I hope that you're not going to be constantly having to look things up in a dictionary, mm. even if you're you know, a ninth grader. Mm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think this. If I were teaching it to to that age group, and in fact, I think the same thing applies to what I would do in teaching it to undergraduates. Is that I would want it to be both very easy and very difficult at the same time. Mm. And that there's a related things. I mean, yeah. there needs both a sense that on some level, this is a totally relatable story. This is about a father, a mother, a child, and how they're lost and separated from each other, and how the family gets back together again. And mm-hmm. it's also about being away from home and being back, being lost and encountering people who aren't like you, and then trying to figure out who are the people who are like me, and what do I do about the others? And mm-hmm. then, then, then once, you, once you get that far, you get into the much more difficult questions of, <laughs> So, what do I do about the others? Do I kill them? Do I treat them as monsters do i Do I other them in all these different ways that are, that the monsters and witches in the, in the odyssey or in his in the his travels are othered do i If people try to get into my home and i don 't want them there, should I kill them? Is that okay? So I think it's a, it can lead you to some very simple questions which in fact you know even even much little children are aware of the whole question of who's in my family, who's not in my family. You know, I have a seven and eight-year-old and they're constantly talking about who is in my family and who's not. That's a very simple question, but it's a very deep question. Mm. And I think Odyssey is very deeply engaged with who am I and who is in my kinship group, who is in my community, how far does my community extend and where do I put up the barriers? Do I put up the barriers by violence? Is there a way that I can preserve my own honour and my own, own identity only by saying no to the people who might want to be in my house, who Mm. are not supposed to be there. Mm. So those questions, I think, are super interesting for pretty much any age. Um, So I would begin with those things, and I would also begin with the whole question of how much... um, If it's from very, very ancient times, and if it's from um, people telling stories when they couldn't even read and write, um, does that make, make for a different kind of storytelling? Is it trying to preserve things that we things that we can't remember or that we couldn't remember without telling stories. What do stories do for us? Which I think is also an interesting set of questions for, for kids who are sort of having, having all this reading and writing forced on them to, to actually get to discuss what does reading and writing do for us? Did the Greeks get along okay without it? And how much can we have, how, how much does storytelling depend on literacy? Hmm. So I think I would take it in those directions as well. well there's so many directions you could take it in.
1: Yeah. Um, um, what my, here's my last question then about that. So <clears throat> one of the things that we get asked a lot when we're at an event or something is when I'm teaching a, something like the Iliad or the Odyssey or even Shakespeare, should I focus primarily on questions of story and character mm-hmm. and, you know, how is, is, is Achilles, I mean, is Odysseus an honorable man? Should Achilles have been as angry as he was all these questions like that? Um, As opposed to, or, or I guess, instead of questions of literary scholarship, say, like, at what point should I begin to teach them about the nature of iambic pentameter or Homeric mm. epithets or um, epic similes or the different things that show up in these works?
2: Yeah.
1: It should, I, I mean, I assume you're going to say it shouldn't be either or, but at what point should those things be introduced? Should they be introduced before you read the book to give context, or should you be reading the story and considering the elements of the story before the elements of the literature? And I know those terms are not exactly what we need for the sake of the... But for the sake of the conversation, I'm just going to use them to differentiate.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, that's that's a very good and very difficult question. I mean, I think the It seems to me that whatever age you are, people are capable of making a distinction between... I. I don't like this character, but I think the story does like his character, right? And so the whole question of does, if I hate Odysseus, does that mean I hate the book? How, how is the story forcing me to like Odysseus? Hmm. Um, and I think he, you could actually get to some very interesting places, even just by asking that very simple question of, what is the poem telling us about Odysseus? It, does the narrator like Odysseus? Is Odysseus presented as the only person who matters in this poem? Um, to what extent does the, does the narrator, narrator, or the the poetic texture, or the I mean, maybe focalization is not a term that you would necessarily use in you know elementary school, but I think you could get to it. I mean, just mm-hmm. the whole question: of, do, do what's the point of view from which the poem is looking at these characters? Mm-hmm. Do epithets help to aggrandize the character? Are there other things that epithets can do? Mm-hmm. Um, which I think are really interesting questions, and and I know that you said I was going to say both and and of course I very then, of course yes I would say both <laughs> um, but I, I, mean, I, think it's, I think it's very important not to delegitimize whatever people actually think or feel as they read the text, mm. I mean if, you, if, if people who are reading the text, whatever age they are feel particular things um, in response to the characters I think it's important to acknowledge those feelings but then push deeper into where are those feelings coming from the text itself is, is making you feel some stuff how is mm-hmm. it doing that? Mm. And then once you ask how, you get to the literary questions.
1: Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, I've used more of your time than I promised I would. So thank you so much. I, I probably should have led with this, but I really enjoy your translation a great deal. Oh,
2: thank
1: you. Um, I thank have you. Full, full disclosure. I've not read every line of it yet, but what I've read, I've read a couple of books. What I've what I've read, I'm really enjoying, and I certainly plan to. To to keep to keep reading them. My hope is to finish it here over over Christmas time. So, um. oh, great!
2: Thank you so much.